to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Isaiah 61, verses 2 and 3. Hello and welcome to the Ducks Never Waver Lunch Break, where you get food for thought and can rejuvenate to sally forth. He's Edwin the brother. She's Megan the sister. And today we are talking about... Culture Care by Makoto Fujimura. Fujimura is a world-renowned artist blending fine art and abstract expressionism and is part of the slow art movement. Fujimura founded the International Arts Movement in 1992, now I Am Culture Care, which oversees the Fujimura Institute. You can read more about all his accomplishments on his website, makotofujimura.com. Edwin, would you like to give us a synopsis of the book Culture Care? Yes, I would. Culture Care is in... This is my own summation, what I took away from the book. Culture care is the exploration of God's mandate to Adam to rule and have dominion over the earth, investigating how our stewardship can bring about great positive change in our lives and the lives of others. Culture care is putting into practice that there is not one square inch that is not in service to God. By tackling pragmatism and cynicism, Fujimura shows that beauty is real and can feed our souls. Again, what we're going to be talking about is this book that he wrote. And if we don't sound particularly clear on some subjects, you should probably go read the book. Because the book is, we're just hitting what we took away from it and the high points of what we think are the high points. There's a lot more information. There's a lot more to get into to actually reading the book. Absolutely. Hopefully you just use this as an encouragement. Um, but I loved it when I first read it. It came at a very good time in my life. It gave a lot of direction. And it's, it's one of those books that you'll read it and you're like, well, yeah, that's obvious. I knew that all along. But it's because it's written in such a way that is so digestible that you, you kind of right away think it was your idea, even though it wasn't. Which is good because I've been able to use a lot of what I've learned from this book and uh, yeah, implement it. And it. So hopefully this little teaser will be helpful for you and also that you go out and find the book and read it for yourself. Definitely. It's, it's, it's very much uh, brings together and codifies information you may already know. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, then you learn something new. It's great. So where are we starting off? Chapter one. Start at the beginning. The beginning of the beginning, Genesis moments. So he talks a lot about uh, generative and Genesis moments. And it's in this pattern of creativity, growth, failure. But it doesn't have to start at any, it doesn't have to start at creativity. It's like a circle or a triangle. It, it goes around that way. Like great many things, it's, it's, you can jump in at any one point and get to the others. So, but what we find most often in our lives, because we're all children of Adam, it starts with failure, tragedy, disappointment, and sometimes frustration. Okay, when you're creating something, it's oftentimes frustration. And 
what he talks about is that these are the points, the turning points where it is a place of learning and creativity. So they can feed into each other. A Genesis moment is a moment that assumes that every moment is important and can be new and that you can take charge basically that you can be a steward of that moment everything we do is is for can be for good if we are correctly orientated towards god and god can work in us and through us to provide good yeah and like you said we can start at failure but we can also start at creativity the the world that we know started in an act of creativity and as now our calling as recreators we get to be stewards of not just the earth but stewards of the culture that we're in that we need to be careful about what culture we're leaving future generations not just what shape the planet's in i think maybe the best place to begin is uh with some some quotes from from the book and he has this story and it's it's a it's a real life story that he kind of has progressed through the whole book and the 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 spark notes of it are he is a struggling art student and newly married and he's going through the budget probably on a Saturday. Why do we always go through budgets on Saturdays? At least I do. Should probably do it on a Monday. But anyways, so he's going through it and his wife gets home from shopping and he's worried about how to like pay the rent and eat some food and she brings home a bouquet of flowers. Now this story takes place back in earlier times when flowers weren't nearly as expensive as they are now. But they're still an extravagance and on the surface, superfluous, right? And uh, his wife, he's getting all mad at his wife. Well, why did you buy this? We can't afford anything. And what are we going to eat? We can't eat the flowers. And his wife, whose name is Judy, replies, we need to feed our souls too. So, from the book, the irony is that I am an artist. I am the one supposedly feeding people's souls. But in worrying for tomorrow, in the stoic responsibility, I felt to make ends meet, to survive, I failed to be the artist. Judy was the artist. She brought home a bouquet. I do not remember how we ended up eating that day or that month. Probably it was tuna fish. But I do remember that particular bouquet of flowers. I painted them. I ne- we need to feed our souls too. Those words still resonate with me today. So that is his that is his genesis moment, his generative moment that brought forth much more and he wrote a book. Basically, he did a bunch of amazing things. He started a whole institute because of that bouquet of flowers. So I think that is a good guide to get into this book. And that was a seed, and he talks a lot about how such large things can grow out of tiny seeds. He says in chapter 2, What emerges from generative moments is something new, 
transformed from its source, something that is both free and responsible to make its ongoing creative contribution. I have on my farm a magnificent old pear tree. This tree has grown from a small seed. First, the seed died. It found welcoming soil and morphed into a tiny shoot. In time, with nurture, it came to full growth, a thing of beauty at many levels, on a scale out of proportion to the original seed, and full of generative potential in its turn. The tree provides shade and shelter, flowers, and fruit. It might provide wood for warmth or walls or works of art. It might contribute to a landscape or resist erosion. It might inspire poems or plays, paintings or photographs, such as the Kiseki painting in the front of this book. It might spark a scientific discovery, host children at play, or lead a man or woman to reflect on the nature of life. That's one busy tree. <laughs> but at the the source of it, I think all these these things there's a a spark that goes towards goodness and what that that is is all those things that he talked about in that paragraph were beautiful the pear tree is beautiful and it's a work of god's creation that is inspiring and i think that that was that quote a little bit that we began the show with that from Isaiah is that there will be beauty again. And God created the world to be beautiful and we're the ones who marred it. But the way through then is not to be hunkered down, oh well, everything's miserable. But it's to recapture those those bits of, of beauty. Yeah, and just pulling out something that was interesting in what you said is that the, the tree has to start by being beautiful. You can't, you can't look at a tree and say, that's a hunk of wood, and that's that. Because like, that's all you're going to get out of that tree then. But if you say that tree is beautiful, then you're going to see children playing under it. You're going to see the fruit of it. You're going to see the potential of its limbs and everything that's... So I think you have to start from a place of beauty to be able to see the other things. Interestingly enough, beauty has become somewhat of a taboo word in the art world at large, the secular art world. That is, for many reasons, pragmatism, cynicism, things we'll get into a little bit later. But Fujimura's point in culture care is that uh, from the book, as an artist and a Christian, I find the source and goal of beauty of generative thinking and a responsible action in the biblical understanding of what our lives are for. We find our creative identity in God. Genesis moments can be assumed simply because God is the great artist, and we are God's artists, called to steward and creation entrusted in our care. The good news of the Bible is that in Christ, we are journeying towards ultimate wholeness, integration, and well-being. We are becoming more fully what we are made to be and to benefit all of creation. 
to tie back into that Isaiah quote is the fulfillment that that comes in Christ. This is from Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. So when it comes to ultimate beauty, it is the saving work of Jesus Christ. And that is why ultimately at the source, the secular world despises beauty. And as Christians, we have the responsibility to integrate beauty back into culture. And that is why in chapter 3, he begins with, People in Western cultures often think of themselves first as individuals, but the human being may be better understood as a focal point of embedded relationships. Sometimes we are more aware of our dependence, and sometimes we are more aware of our contributions. But we exist in community, in families, in places, in churches, in groups, in economies, ecologies. What is more, our multifaceted interactions with our physical and cultural environment directly affect our bodies, our minds, our spirits, and ultimately, our souls. So, we are not autonomous. Oftentimes, you will hear things that make people think in the world today that they can do what they want. I am my own person. I'm 18 years old. I can do what I want. One, this is ridiculous. None of us can do what we want. We are constrained by so many things. Also, can you just pick an arbitrary number for when you're able to do everything? I don't know. 18 always just seems like really just, ah, 18. That sounds good. It is, it is arbitrary, and then the fact of the matter they had to go back and revise it because, well, maybe you're still not good at using alcohol, so mm-hmm. you can do anything you want besides that. When it comes to being autonomous, that's, that's a big cultural disease that we face, that people think that they can do whatever they want. But another one, we, we face so many, uh, and he goes into Chapter 3 talking a little bit about how our culture is starved. Modern people began to equate progress in effic- with efficiency. Despite valiant and ongoing resistance from many quarters, including within industry, success for a larger part of our culture is now judged on- by efficient production and mass consumption. We often value repetitive machine-like performances as critical to bottom-line success. In the successive industrialist mentality, people became workers, or human resources, who are first seen as interchangeable cogs, then treated as machine, and now are often replaced by machines. And this is something that many people feel enraged against, but they don't understand the root cause of the problem. The problem is, is that we're not looking to the fact that every person is greater than the sum of the, some of their parts. And that is also looking at that first paragraph of the chapter where we are not individuals, but we are, the individual is maybe a collection point of all those things. It's like a web. At the center of the web is a spider. But out from the spider is so many strands going to many different places. In response to just being human resources, people struggle more and more to be individuals and as a result of that you have the expert 
and you have a whole culture of experts. Fujimura says, the expert knows one part, not the whole, and often not even the wider field in which they work. They consciously reduce their scope of concern to go deeper in their discipline. But increased clarity on a narrow point usually comes at the price of blindness to his context and to one's working assumptions. It often brings isolation from, and sometimes alienation from, or hostility to, those with differing expertise. Today's experts usually shies away from questions of meaning and connection and responsibility, referring such issues to those who specialize in meaning. This is, of course, fundamentally unsatisfying for human beings and contributes to our cultural unease. So it doesn't really seem to help you become an individual, does it? No, because you don't feel like a full person. And that's the problem when you're trying to be an individual and you're just going to say, I am alone and I can do everything myself. Go ahead, sing it. <laughs> I am a rock. I am an island. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, and the whole point of that song, too, is it's just not true. Yeah. But that's the thing. When we try to go it alone, it doesn't work very well, you know. And the reason it doesn't work very well is because God created us in connection with other people, right? The whole point of Adam going through all the animals and not finding a helper was to show Adam that he needed something. He needed Eve. I mean, that it's so embedded into who we are goes all the way back to Genesis. So we should not be surprised that it still is needed today. Also that when you, you look so narrowly and you have these blinders on, you, you miss the scope and beauty of the world. The world is so complex, and that's part of its beauty. The old saying, a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. Basically, if you know a, a wide array of things, it actually is going to help you with the one thing that you're trying to accomplish. I can't tell you how many times I'll be making one thing and I use my knowledge of another craft or just another thing I've heard to, to help me with it. I don't just look at, like let's say I'm crocheting, I don't just look at crochet knowledge to help me with my problems. I often look at sewing patterns and other things like that. So the more I know about sewing, the better I get at crocheting. Yeah, there's another quote, something like, once you know the way broadly, you see the way in all things. I think that's oh, like a Sun yeah. Tzu quote. And another point of individualism is it actually ends up making you more dependent on others. Because you, your field is so narrow, you can't move without other experts. You can't do things without their knowledge. So, and I, I, I know, like, the, for me, like, I, 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 what's, what's, what's the animal, um, picture? It's, like, a fox knows many things, and the hedgehog is really good at one thing. And I've, I've always been more of a fox, just because I can't stay focused on something <laughs> long enough to become a hedgehog. But you can see, like, when you're, you have, um, jobs like farming or whatever, there's a lot of jobs where you have to know you know, mechanics and you have to know agriculture and you have to know about animals and you need to know all these things for your job 
because you you can't just endlessly be calling or hiring all those people. That's right. If you're out in the middle of nowhere, you're going to need to know how to fix a combine with a roll of duct tape and a vice grip. Maybe some WD-40 if you're lucky. (laughs) But even the most independent person is dependent. And I I think that's going to always be our struggle, especially someone like me who just wants to be independent all the time, is that you realize that you're not. Like even the farmer who knows a lot or the expert who knows a lot about one thing, we all are still dependent. And when you come to grips to it, then you're not going to worry about what you know you're you're going to more focus on the grace of God that you're always dependent on him. Like even, I don't know, you, you've said before, Edwin, that the idea of like making bread is like, oh, I made bread. Well, did you draw and filter the water? Did you grow the wheat and mill it? Did you go to the sea and harvest the salt? Did you capture wild yeast? I'm, I'm assuming most people are saying no. Did you make the oven that you baked it in? Like there, There's so many things that you are reliant on to make your own bread that it's hubris to say, I did this by myself. I had that question in an interview once where I was saying um, certain volunteer work that I had organized. And she's like, well, what have you done by yourself? I was like, uh, well, I, you, I didn't do it by myself, which was a terrible answer. I have a much better answer now. I'm like, well, it's a collective thing, but I was the leader, but of course everyone is an important player. But I didn't say that. I was really dumb at that interview. <laughs> um, but she was not impressed that I said it wasn't just me. She wanted it to be just me. And I'm like, no. Because if it's just me, then none of the work would get done. Yeah, it is. The, well, that's the whole point of leaders, right? They can't do it by themselves, but they can bring in the right people and make them all connected and work towards one common goal. I mean, that's, that's what a business owner does on a daily basis. Like, okay, we're going to build this house. I'm going to get this plumber organized and bring him in after the framers done their work. And then after that comes the electrician. And then after that comes the drywall guy. It's like all these people, some of these people don't know each other. And you get them all to work together towards one common goal. Building houses is good is a good metaphor. Even the Lord uses that metaphor. Just a couple times. Thank you for listening to part one of Culture Care. We will continue next week by talking about T.S. Eliot and how to become a deeper person. We hope you have enjoyed the Ducks Never Waver lunch break. If you would like to fill your senses with more Ducks Never Waver goodness, you can feast your eyeballs on Instagram and Facebook. Touch some of our beautiful pieces that we will ship right to your door by ordering them through Etsy. Or you can continue hearing us on this magnificent culmination of auditory recordation. Donation buckets are in the description for you to invest in the betterment of this podcast. We will work diligently to read and present interesting topics. Your hard-earned money will be joyously and gratefully spent to improve your lunch break. 
want to keep your hard-earned money, and who doesn't? You can still support us and yourself by rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing this year's podcast with all the other ducks in your life. Stay quacky, my friends.